Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you're a current nonprofit leader or you hope to be one, you're in the right place. If you would do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so that we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation this episode with Phil Buchanan, who brings great experience as the leader for almost 20 years of the Center for Effective Philanthropy. And Phil and his colleagues have been studying the key issues that affect our sector. And he's literally been talking to nonprofit leaders and funders from all over the United States. And that's really what made this conversation so valuable because Phil and I were able to discuss what are the key changes that have occurred as a result of the pandemic and which ones should continue. Perhaps there are others, however, that we should go back to doing it the way things were. It was also fascinating to hear Phil reflect on his great book, and it's called Giving Done Right. And I asked him what things came out of the pandemic that confirmed what he was saying in his book, and perhaps some things he might change now that we have all experienced the differences in philanthropy over the last year. Phil not only has great insight for you as a nonprofit leader, but he's also not afraid to share his opinion. And it's important, I think, for us to listen carefully to what he has to say and think about some of these issues that affect our sector in a good way and others in a not-so-good way. And that's what will make this conversation, I think, even more valuable for you to hear. Lots to learn from. Make sure you go to the show notes for this bonus episode. It's number 108. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find the great information on Phil, the work he's doing at the Center for Effective Philanthropy, his book, again, called Giving Done Right. And he also has a podcast by the same name that you need to check out and learn even more. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so you can get free weekly resources just like this bonus episode and things that can help you build your nonprofit strategic plan, maybe re-engage your board of directors, or let us help you determine your next step toward nonprofit leadership through some of our coaching, training, or one of our unique mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Phil Buchanan. Phil, thank you for joining me on the path. Patton, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation, Phil. You have a unique perspective and, frankly, a global perspective of philanthropic leadership topics, You know, both from the funder side and, I think, very much relevant to the nonprofit leaders that are listening to this podcast. And, of course, we're going to talk about the work you're doing at the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Excited to talk about your book, Giving Done Right. But let me start with this. You know, what are you most proud of? You've had your hands in lots of important topics and issues, but I'm curious as you think about all the work you've done in the philanthropic space, is there something that jumps out? Yeah, I really, and this is why I love your podcast, um, want to raise up the nonprofit leader for the sort of unsung hero that so many of them are. I mean, I think that nonprofit leadership takes everything it takes 
to run an equivalent size business and then a whole lot of other stuff. It's harder, not easier, despite all the stereotypes and sort of um, mistaken impressions about the nonprofit world. So in terms of what I'm proud of, I'm proud that we at CEP have been able to sort of raise up to donors and funders the realities of what it takes for nonprofits, what kind of support uh, leaders need to be effective. Um, and then and then in the book, I really tried to raise up some of the stories of, of individual nonprofit leaders who are um, all across this country, all across the world, but in communities um, doing the really tough work, often the work that has defied market solutions or government interventions. That's why it's there to be done. And so I hope that we've played some small role in just lifting up uh, those folks and helping donors understand how to better support them. You have indeed. And I'm excited to unpack that even further because you illustrated in your book. And of course, we'll talk about the CEP and the work you're doing there. I guess I want to first ask you a question personally, because you and I both talked to a lot of nonprofit leaders who've been juggling this strange yep. virtual world for the last year. Have you found anything in particular that's helped you stay organized and effective given all that you are, I mean, all the balls you're having to keep in the air? This is going to sound ridiculous, but um, the best thing for me uh, is our family made a decision like so many others uh, early in the pandemic to get a dog. And uh, really? why, <laughs> that's great. So why has that been good uh, for my productivity? It doesn't sound like it would be. And definitely in the first six weeks, because our dog was a puppy, it was not good. Uh, but it's been good because it's forced me outside more, uh, right. uh, forced me to walk more, you know, several times a day. And I find that to be really useful to step away, especially when we're working from home. I'm starting to go back in the office now a couple of days a week, which is right. nice, but, but it's just been a really good break. And for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people, and I, there may even be, be some science behind it, you know, you get clarity on, on things, even things like, well, what should my priorities be for the rest of this day or for this week when you're out walking and when you're outside? And so um, that's been, I'm not telling everybody to get a dog, but it's been, <laughs> it's been helpful for, for, for me. And, and plus she's, she's, she's the coolest. So anyway, that's awesome. Well, but I like your point of getting out and clearing your head. It, it, I'm guessing this will be a routine that you will maintain even as you start to go back to the office. Yeah. Well, we're in, and we're, none of us, I think will be in the office as much, uh, as we were before. Right. right. So, so certainly I'll be working from home more. It's a little bit hard to maintain the routine when your office is in uh, Central Square in Cambridge, if you've ever been there, which is wow. uh, not the easiest place to go for a nice, uh, quiet walk. Uh, right. But but um, but but I am going to try to get outside more and out of the office e even there during the days um, because it helps me. It just it just helps me and it calms me down. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice, and I hope that might be another silver lining that we've all picked up. That as much as there's efficiency in the Zoom world, we uh, operate in to some extent. We got to get up. We got to get out. Yeah, right, and totally. keep things moving. And yeah, well, um, for our listeners that don't know, Phil, let's talk about what exactly is the Center for Effective Philanthropy. Yeah, we've uh, we're coming up on our 20 year anniversary. Uh, we are focused on helping foundations as well increasingly as individual donors 
to be more effective uh, in pursuit of whatever goals they're pursuing. And we do a lot of things uh, to, 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 try to, um, to try to pursue that objective. Uh, for foundations, we have a variety of different assessment and advisory services. Maybe we're best known for uh, what's called the Grantee Perception Report, which is a survey of nonprofit grantees in which they can be candid because it's confidential and we're presenting the data back. And the data is comparative because that's so important because getting a grant from a foundation tends to be a positive experience. Folks rate high on an absolute basis, but on a comparative basis, there's all kinds of variation. So we tried to lift up the perspective of nonprofits to funders uh, nice. through, that, through that assessment tool. We also have a whole research agenda. Um, again, some of it is about lifting up the perspectives of grantees, declined applicants, others, uh, but we also look at issues like foundation performance assessment, foundation strategy, uh, what individual donors need to know about what nonprofits need. Um, and then we have um, a variety of programming initiatives, uh, webinars, uh, conferences when, when, when those are, are safe to do uh, right, and, right. and where, we, where we bring folks together. Um, then there is one other uh, kind of special program that sits within CEP. It, maybe it won't forever. Maybe sometime it will spin out, but I'm super proud of it, even though it's a little bit different. It came out of our work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, where we had been surveying their grantees. And uh, they said, boy, this is really helpful for us because we're you know, we don't necessarily hear the most candid feedback directly from folks who who want our funding, uh, right. which is, you know, huge. Dynamic. Understandable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But how about you help us hear from the people who should really matter the most, the people whose lives we're trying to improve? And we had many conversations with them about how we could do that. And we piloted something called Youth Truth, um, which was initially focused on their education uh, grantees, uh, surveying kids in schools about school climate, um, perceptions of academic rigor, whole bunch of different uh, questions. It, that the Gates Foundation is less involved now, but that has grown into a national uh, student survey. We've 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 surveyed almost two million young people, um, uh, upper elementary, middle school, high school, as well as um, staff and family, and helped school districts as well as education funders understand. Uh, how are young people experiencing school? How does that differ along various uh, demographics? So it's called Youth Truth, youthtruthsurvey.org. And that nice. kind of sits within CEP, even though it's separately branded. But that's such a fantastic resource for funders, right? Who are trying to make a, a more of an impact. And so in essence, you have a lot of the research and data that perhaps will help shape literally how their giving practices uh, continue. I hope so. And, uh, you know, all of the research reports are free on our website, cep.org. And, um, and you know, there, this is a moment um, where it feels like funder practices, donor practices are, are changing, have changed in response to the crisis. And the big question, and changed in some good ways that I think are beneficial for uh, nonprofits and for for ultimate impact. And the big question now is, will those changes be sustained or will donors and foundations just kind of snap back yeah. to pre-pandemic practices, some of which didn't make any sense? Right. 
So you hope, obviously, some of these changes will indeed be maintained. And and I guess that leads to my question: as a nonprofit leader, you know, yep. I should, I, I need to better understand the perspective from the funder. And I'm guessing that's among the things you would say. Yeah, that's why nonprofit leaders ought to pay attention to what's going on at CEP as well. Yeah, I hope I hope so. Um, I, I hope that nonprofit leaders find our work useful. Um, I give you an example of an issue everybody talks about, which is um, uh, the need for multi-year general operating support, right? The incredible challenge that nonprofit leaders have uh, when they are primarily funded with program-restricted and single-year grants. The difficulty of planning and hiring, uh, covering core costs that might not be considered quote-unquote program uh, a distinction that doesn't even usually make a heck of a lot of sense. Right. Well, in this crisis, um, it became just blindingly obvious that it makes very little sense to support an organization whose goals overlap with yours in ways that then constrain it from responding to an unprecedented crisis that required unprecedented levels of change and adaptation. So that was clear. And lots of donors and foundations um, were more flexible with their funding as a result. Um, So yes, it was particularly true in the pandemic, but but it is also true in general that that kind of support is helpful. Now, I'm not an absolutist. I'm not saying there's never a reason for a program-restricted grant. Sure. Uh, but, But for nonprofits, I think to be tuned in to as I think most of them are, nonprofit leaders. Well, what is that discussion within the funding community? Um, How are things potentially changing? How could I make the case um, that this was transformational for me when I had that flexibility during that period? And this is why I would like you to continue to give us that level of trust going forward, because we feel we earned it during that time. Let me show you how. And, and so now how about giving us uh, a re-up for three years of flexible funding? Uh, you know, and so I think if, if nonprofit leaders can plug into some of those conversations in donor land, uh, they can then be more effective in communicating with donors and foundations because they understand where they're coming from and what might be the most um, sort of uh, winning lines in yeah, their communication yeah. with donors. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And I guess I was going to ask you to reiterate, as you talk to funders, you are you optimistic that they might consider this longer term operational funding? Because admittedly, nonprofit leaders are coming to you and I both, I'm sure, and saying, come on, right. I feel like I have to come up with some creative new prog- programmatic initiative to get the funders' attention. And yeah. so are you saying that maybe they'll give us some slack on that? I am optimistic. Um but I'm an optimist. So, uh, and I've, and, and I've been wrong before, you know, uh, I, I mean, we, we put out a, a, a piece that, um, last year that was all based on data collection prior to the pandemic. And what it showed was that attitudes among foundation leaders had changed with respect to general operating support, but practices hadn't. And, right. you know, I, <laughs> I wanted to flip the table. Well, you know, when I when I realized, like, oh my gosh, like we've just been stuck at this roughly twenty percent ish, you know, 
of grants being unrestricted. And this makes makes no sense. Yep. Um, but I am optimistic that things are things are really different now um, with respect to the conversation about practices, funding practices. I think things have also changed in terms of the conversation about who is funded and that there is a greater recognition among donors and foundations. And I hope that this too will uh, persist of the fact that big is not always better. Um, Scale, scale can matter. Scale can be really important, but sometimes, and, and we saw this in this crisis, smallness is an asset because smallness can mean community rootedness, connection to a vulnerable community, trust with that community uh, that gives a community-based organization a unique opportunity to make a difference. And I, I think I think some folks have recognized that in a different way. And we've seen some shifts in who foundations are funding uh, as they've tried to support those organizations. So I hope, I hope that that uh, is just another example of something where, hey, we did it differently. And maybe this is something we should continue to do. And a third, I guess, example would be just the the kind of reporting requirements uh, for, right. for nonprofits. Like wh- what when when all of these foundations uh, reduced the reporting burden on nonprofits, uh, did anyone suffer? Exactly uh, right. Or in fact, did the reduced transaction costs on the to nonprofit side and the funder side free up time that could be spent more productively in other ways. Well, it's such a good point. And did it illustrate or this this recent history illustrate that there were barriers, right, to a lot of organizations, in particular, I would think what you're saying, Phil, the small organization that just didn't qualify. And now right. the funder, I guess, reduced some of that requirement for um, you know the application process or whatever. So again, you're optimistic that that might continue, that funders are like, all right, maybe we should be a little more, I guess, liberal in our consideration of organizations. I am. I am. I'm cautiously optimistic. And, 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 and another related thing is, is this recognition that um, by both individual donors and foundations, I mean, I, I, I guess one of the, one of the things I argue in the book, right, is that um, a big mistake that donors make is thinking they know better what others need, uh, being too top down in their yep. strategy. And um, and I think what we saw during the last year was an increasing uh, willingness of donors to turn to um, others uh, who were closer to the ground, whether that be the community foundation that had, I think community foundations played such a vital role during this last year, you know, bridging the donor who wanted to do something but didn't know how to find the organization with the organization that was doing that thing. Um, but also we see private foundations uh, sometimes turning to uh, realizing, you know, we want to do, we want to do something much deeper on, you know, let's say um, racial equity and democracy or countering, you know, counter, or more specifically like countering uh, voter suppression efforts. Well, we don't know how to do that, but, there's there are intermediaries that do like 
black voters matter, you know, let's fund them uh, yes, or, right. you know, and, 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 and more and more of these funds. And you got, you want to worry on the one hand about, you know, again, sort of too much in the way of transaction costs, but I think that's often outweighed by the expertise of those who are closer to the issues or communities. Um, so folks don't have to do it all themselves. They can, they can, they don't necessarily have to be the one making all the decisions about who the most worthy recipients are. They can turn to people who are closer to the community. Yeah. Uh, we'll love that. And it, I'm struck by the fact that your book giving done right is, is relevant now <laughs> as it was when you wrote it. And, but I, I wondered so. in the last <laughs> year, were you finding yourself saying, yep, that's what I said in the book, you know, it's, it's proving itself. Or were there some things you're like, wow, maybe I would adjust my thinking, you know, based on the activity of the last year? Yeah, uh, it's like confirmation bias, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there, I, I really don't want to sound like the person who thinks, you know, they had it all figured out because I definitely, <laughs> right. definitely did not. But, but I mean, I do think that there are certain things that I talk about, for example, the way in which strategy needs to be shared, right? There's been too much of an importation in the foundation world of a business framing of strategy. And I used to be a strategy consultant in the business world. Right. And strategy in the business world is all about unique positioning. Uh, we, we have to be different from our competitors. Uh, and we wouldn't want anyone even to know, like when I was a strategy consultant working with big companies, like we, we, it was all closely guarded. Like they right. didn't want their competitors to know what the strategy was. Well, if you're a foundation and your strategy is yours alone, you're not gonna be successful. It has to be shared. Right. And I think that there was there was such a need for collaboration and a lot of good collaboration that happened in response to this crisis. I mean, I think in terms of the second part of your question, um, I think in terms of like, what do I wish I had emphasized more in the book? You know, I, I think I, I think when I talk about in the chapter on strategy, um, a lot of the examples that I use in the book of effective giving, um, you know, have to do with progress related to, to equity and racial equity, you know, criminal justice reform or equity more broadly in terms of um, the, the movement for rights for LGBTQ people and so on. But I don't think I argued as explicitly as I would now or should have then right. about the need, no matter what your, your programmatic focus is, to ask a really series of hard questions about the connection between racial inequity and those programmatic goals. I mean, I, I kind of nodded to it in the book, but I didn't go deep enough on it. And, sure. and I think I think that what I what I believe is that if you are funding in the environment, for example, you know, you have to engage the questions related to disproportionate exposure to toxins in the United States among certain communities of color. If you are funding in education, you have to engage the role of race and racism in disparate educational outcomes or disparate uh, school discipline you know, uh, outcomes, same for criminal justice and on down the line. And yet it is still true that you can go to some websites of some major foundations 
and read about a strategy in X program area in which race isn't even mentioned. And the sad fact is that in this country, given its history and present day reality, you know, that's not, that's not going to work. You've no. got to engage these issues of, of, of structural and systemic racism and make sure that your philanthropic efforts are um, combating rather than potentially perpetuating those inequities. Yeah. You articulate that very well. And I know you have gone on record to say that, that there needs to be more of that. Uh, of course, we both know there are organizations that just don't seem to accept that, Correct. And, which is frustrating. Um, but again, as the optimist, you have claimed to be and are, <laughs> you know, are you seeing more organizations using, I, I guess, on the funder side, a more collaborative strategic planning process, which gives you hope? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I just think there there is a recognition that folks don't want to make the mistake of uh, cooking up a strategy with consultants in a conference room, uh, you know, putting a bunch of resources behind it, only to find that um, you know that it didn't that it it didn't have enough support from the folks who really needed to support it. So they never talked to, to work. Them, right. Yeah, they never exactly. even spoke to them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the, you know, this, this, I mean, the story I, I tell in the book to illustrate this, which is, um, you know, kind of a ridiculous story, but it's a true story is, uh, is the um, effort of, of Bill Gates to, um, who, you know, and, and, and as you know, I, I, I talk both, I praise the Gates Foundation for unbelievable, uh, I think, important, really important work. Lots of critics of it, but I think you cannot, you cannot really argue uh, that the Gates Foundation hasn't contributed to uh, saving massive numbers of lives and contributing to a massive decline in worldwide childhood mortality, and that's to be applauded. Absolutely. And then also also have a lot of critiques of the Gates Foundation's missteps in areas like education. But on this particular topic, I, I write about, um, about this effort to encourage um, poor people in developing countries to raise chickens as a way out of poverty. And, and it, was, it was just like a classic kind of make sense in the abstract, uh, so we're just going to get everybody to do it, and then it all falls apart. Story. <laughs> I mean, there was a, a right. blog post under Bill Gates's byline on the foundation website that said uh, raising chickens is the best way out of poverty for poor people. It, and it said something like, "I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically uh. this: If I were poor, that's what I would do. I would raise chickens." You know, and it's like I I don't know where the communications folks were on that one. Like, yeah, like but... that's a li little tone deaf. And then. And then they partner with Heifer International to try to bring chickens to developing countries. And, and the most sort of spectacular rejection came from the government of Bolivia, who, who some government official said, who does he think we are some backward people living 500 years ago? Right. We don't want your chickens, you know, and, and, and then uh, the, Guardi the Guardian had this headline, you know, Bolivia to Bill Gates, cluck you. And, uh, and you right. know, and, and, and I think the point here is that like something something can make sense. Um, I suppose it could even be right. It could be true that this yeah. is the best path in some abstract sense. But 
But people need to chart their own paths. People need to want for themselves what they want in their lives, right? And 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 so, um, and as a friend of mine always says, like, who works in philanthropy, people are the best experts on their own lives. You yes. know, so we have to be so careful thinking that we know better what others need. And that has huge implications, not just for donors, not for, just for foundations, but for nonprofits too, which can fall into that trap, I think, of not really hearing what it is those they serve are, are needing and wanting for themselves and making assumptions about that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I, it, it seems to me that the advice to our nonprofit leader listeners is that funders are going to want more to see that our strategic plans and our case for support, I guess, includes evidence from the people we serve. In other words, yes. we didn't just go off on a weekend retreat, as you said, and come back and have claimed to figure it out. But is, is that among the specific advice you'd give nonprofit leaders, uh, given maybe the receptivity of funders to, to want to see that? Yeah, I think so. And and obviously, it doesn't have relevance for every nonprofit. I mean, I somebody, you know, somebody said to me once, like, Phil, the beneficiary of the work we do is is wolves in, in uh, you know, <laughs> right. in, in, Can't talk to in, them, right? <laughs> in, right, threatened areas of why, you know, so, but, but when you're talking about human beings, um, who, who, you know, who are able to communicate something, you know, what, how are you incorporating their perspectives into your strategy development process? And then importantly, how are you getting their feedback on how it's going, um, as you implement whatever strategy you have. And, you know, there's a um, funder collaborative called the Fund for Shared Insight that that created this um, survey called, it's called uh, Listen for Good, that kind of, that they're trying to get nonprofits to use particularly, I think it's particularly relevant for those more in human services. Um, you know, and it's a set of questions that, that, that they argue um, any nonprofit uh, should should know the answer to in terms of how their uh, population that they're trying to help uh, feels about how things are going. And um, I'm not saying that's the only tool, you know, but, the, but what are the structures that you're building? So there's sort of continuous feedback from the folks you're, you're trying to help. Yeah, that's, and I, I talked to that, uh, our mutual friend, um, Rep Mabry, the Duke Endowment, you know, and, yep. he, but I was going to ask you that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, some organizations, have a harder time with the kind of level of data collection that yeah. I guess sometimes perhaps was a barrier, right? That I may be doing good work, but I'm new or I'm, I'm understaffed. Do you think funders though, again, have more kind of patience with that going forward, perhaps because of the last year? Well, I hope so. I mean, I, there's one thing that I know just drives nonprofit leaders mad is this sort of unfunded mandates, right? From yeah. a, donor to provide this or that data um, without the conversation about what data is actually going to be useful to you in running this organization uh, or executing this program. So I, I, I do think that there's more, again, it relates to the, the top-down, the, the sort of top-down approach that I think characterized too much of quote-unquote big philanthropy sort of, I don't know, 2000 to 2015 for a bunch of reasons having to do with an over-reliance on business analogies and underappreciation of the distinct nature of this work that led to um, 
yeah, folks being top down, not just in strategy, but also in in conversations about about performance assessment. And and the 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 real question is like, is well the real the real questions need to come in a dialogue. Like, yes. What yes. you know? What are you trying to do? How are you thinking about knowing if that's working? Uh, what you know, recognizing that there's, there's not a one size fits all for performance assessment, you know, um, it, you know, it's really dependent on the circumstance. You know, if you're trying to change the life outcomes of young people who had been gang involved, um, well, then you want to look at recidivism rates. You want to look at employment five years out, 10 years out. That's really important. If you're running a children's museum, you know, let's not, try to track whether at age 30, you know, the person who visited a lot between ages and five, five and seven with their family <laughs> is having a different life than they would have otherwise. Uh, that's, that's not the goal. That's a, that would be a ridiculous goal, you know, but, but, but does that mean there's nothing that the children's museum should assess? Of course not. Uh, right. There's all kinds of important things for them to assess. So it's just like, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm ranting now potentially, Patton, but, but, <laughs> but the, but the, the, the Donors have so often, so many donors have looked for the analog to profit or ROI, the one thing that we can compare that's all true. nonprofits, you know, and that leads to focus on things like overhead ratios, which are not really useful for answering the important questions. So we just have to accept that this is a much more complicated uh, process. It's really important. And I, 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 the thing that I encourage nonprofit leaders to do, which is easy for me to say and hard sure. to do, is to be candid and direct with funders in these conversations about, you know, this is what we know about our program. This is what we wish we knew. This is what it would take for us to know that second thing and how we might use that information. Can you help us with that? You know, right. Um, right. And, 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 and also the other part of it, even harder, is when the donor says, I'd like you to collect this data, that data, and this data, without even asking you what you think about it. You say, well, wait, can we, can we actually talk about this? Because some of this, we don't understand why that would be useful to Good. you or to us. I can push back, in other words. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm encouraged because I do think that kind of dialogue is perhaps, again, more possible uh, now. Uh, I grew up in the fundraising game and you're right, Phil, I, 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 I'm guilty of wanting to tell the funder what I think the funder wants to hear. And, and so it. you're encouraging us, right, to say, no, maybe that's not really a good thing. Yeah, we all do it. And I, I would say, because, you know, I have said that and I've had people say to me, um, I've said that and I've used examples from my own uh, time as a nonprofit leader. And I've had people say to me, and I think this is right to push back on me in this way. Phil, you know, you're, you're a white guy with an MBA, you know, who, who basically, you know, uh, it's easier for you, you know, and, and exactly. I think that that's, you know, I think that that's true. And so I want to acknowledge that and also say, you know, I hope still folks can find a way, you know, find a way to, to say what they need, because you won't get it if you don't say it. And I fully recognize there's all kinds of power dynamics and it's very difficult um, and more difficult for others than, than maybe it has been for definitely than it has been for me. Um, but it's, it's just important, important to, to try to do it. Yeah. Makes total sense. 
Is there anything else, Phil, as you and your research, and you again have been on both sides of the fence, kind of looking at the funder perspective and the nonprofit leader perspective, um, as to what funders are looking for? Perhaps some things that might surprise the nonprofit leader. You know, we all talk about, all right, they're going to look for our board engagement or they're going to look right. for the data we collect or what are they looking for, do you think? And I know that's a generalization, but are there some things that have come up in your work that might be helpful? Yeah, it's, it is so hard to generalize because donors are so diverse uh, in their interests and what they're looking for. But I do think, you know, being able to make a simple and compelling case about the what of what you do, the how of how you do it, and the how do you know that it's making any difference nice. is, yep. is the most important thing, you know? Um, and um, so I think that's, that's crucial. And, and I think right now among many funders and donors, uh, there is heightened sensitivity to the question of who, uh, you know, who is on your board, who is in leadership roles, how does that relate to the community that you, that you, that you seek to work with? Interesting. You know, uh, yep. And, and I, I think that, I think that's a good thing. I mean, if people have to be thoughtful about it and, and I, and, and recognize that, that, you know, I, I, I never want to be misinterpreted here as saying that, folks can't do really, really crucial, important work in communities that they didn't come from. Of course they can, you right. know, uh, and also that connection to community being served is really, really important too. And, and, and I think, I think funders are asking more questions about that and having more conversations about that. And, you know, it relates to something that I, I have a lot of strong opinions about, which is who is on your board, you know, and, 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 um, and it's, there's so much pressure for nonprofits to, to just bring the donors onto the board. Right. And, and I think there's so much lost if the board doesn't include the perspectives that allow it to really be about purpose and about, you know, strategy. Uh, and, and, and so that's a little bit of a tangent. I, I apologize, but, but I, I think one, that it, it does, it does relate to what donors want. And I think that there's some important conversations happening now. Uh, and I would point your listeners in particular to a recent article by Ann Wallestead, uh, who's a friend of mine, who's the CEO of board source uh, on becoming a purpose-driven board. It's in Stanford Social Innovation Review. I think it came out, um, you know, in the first first quarter of, of of this year, 2021. It's outstanding. And I think every board should have a conversation about, about that article. I cannot wait to lift that up. And you're right. I've, I've had Jim Taylor, her colleague, on the yeah. podcast. And and I, he may, I, I don't know all the details of Ann's article, but I bet there's some similarities in what we discussed and I'm glad you're raising it up that boards need oh, absolutely. to, right. They need to have that kind yeah. of conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are there any other questions the funders are coming to you for? In other words, I, I'm just curious, any other trends um, as they maybe in a good way, reevaluate their giving practices? Or are you kind of running into certain topics or questions as these funders have these discussions with you? Uh, we're being asked by a number of big foundations to help them collect uh, demographic data uh, to uh, related to what I was just saying to understand 
better? Uh, like who are their grantees? What's the leadership team look like in terms of race, gender identity, you know, various other demographic um, questions, same for the boards. Not to say, you know, people get, people can get very um, worried about this. I think the point is not, uh, is not to say you have to be X or Y in order to be funded, but rather to be uh, aware of what is the current situation, right? Like, who are we funding, like, in terms of leaders, you know, and this can be really, really interesting to, uh, we, we were just looking at the data for one foundation that we had done this for. And, you know, e even just the simple recognition that the gender breakdown of the leadership of their grantees was totally different by program area, right? And that really? has, yeah, you know, and 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 it, it it wasn't entirely surprising because certain areas are, you know, tend to be more dominated by, you know, leaders one gender or or another but but it was really important for them to see wow you know in in this program 65% of the leaders of the nonprofits that we're funding are women and in this other program 25% are you know uh, interesting just just simple data that that leads them to then ask some questions uh, uh, including questions like well what's going on in this particular field that there isn't you know that that there seem to be some barriers for for women leaders you know and does that have any implications for our strategy that kind of thing so lots of questions about about that um that that's one area i mean i think another area and again we've already touched on this is not surprising is um folks trying to figure out okay well how do i advance racial equity in my in my philanthropy and you know we had a um we had a webinar earlier this year uh, on this topic uh, with um, great folks, Darren Walker from Ford Foundation, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change, uh, Trisha Rakes, who's a donor, uh, Yolanda Coentro from the Institute for Nonprofit Practice. And wow. we had 1,100 people on the webinar. Now that may not be a big number to some folks, but for us, we've never had a webinar That's, with 1,100 people I'd say people that is before. huge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and they reinforced, obviously, some of these same things. And I'm struck by, again, yes. if I'm a nonprofit leader and a board and maybe staff leadership, we need to really consider some of the demographics that you're talking about in terms of our our membership, right? Both from a staff and a board side. Yeah. And and, a, and another a, another demographic element, if if that's the right word for it, that that I always wonder about on, on nonprofit boards is, you know, why don't we have more folks on nonprofit boards who know about nonprofits? Uh, you know, I, I am, yes. I'm, I'm struck by how many nonprofit boards will just be, and I, I got nothing against lawyers or investment bankers, but you know, I, I see boards, it's like entirely lawyers and investment, yes. you know, like, and again, it's because this orientation toward the board as a fundraising board, That's but like, correct. we need to have folks who understand the nature of this work, who can help bring, that understanding and thoughtfulness to questions of strategy, to questions of how we assess and support the CEO. And I just hope that that shifts, not just at nonprofits, but also, also at foundations, which too often don't have anyone in the boardroom who's actually been on the other side of the table such from a good foundations. Point. I'm seeing some evidence, but not enough yet, Phil, but nonprofits that I'm working with who actually have like a retired nonprofit executive director on their board. 
Yeah, and I think great. that is such a healthy perspective and glad to see that you want to see more of that as well. Absolutely. Um, it must be fascinating and yet frustrating as you produce a book that you get a lot of feedback, mostly positive. I'm sure you get some that is uh, uh, on both sides of the critique side. But yeah. I, I noticed that and I'm quoting Richard Besser from the, the CEO of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, wrote this quote, many critics question how philanthropy with its massive concentration of wealth can contribute to a healthy society. He says, this book provides a clear answer. I wonder, how'd you react to that? That had to be somewhat uh, gratifying or how did you take it? I, well, I was thrilled that, that Rich read the book and that he had that, you <laughs> yeah, know, and, 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 and that he had that perspective on it. And, and I, and that he chose to emphasize that, um, that element, because I have been concerned about some of the critiques of philanthropy that seem to me to not sufficiently engage with the fact that government, even at its best, cannot do everything. Yep. And that we need we need countervailing pressures and forces, right? So it was odd to me that some of the most vocal critics, you know, in say 2019, when there was really just a lot of critique, um, we're almost um, uh, mythologizing, it seemed to me, the, the role of government at a moment when uh, it just seemed an odd time to be doing that, given, yep. given the way the government was functioning. And so, so for example, let's take criminal justice uh, reform. You know, when you're talking about changing the criminal justice system, you're talking about changing government policies that have led to massively disproportionate rates of arrest, conviction, and incarceration uh, for, you know, Black people relative to white people accused of the very same things, right? Yep. You know, uh, yep. sent, sentenced for the very same things. So you, you're talking about, and I, I just to be really direct about it, because this is what I think it is, a government policy that is, that is, racist at the very least in its impact, if not its intent. And yep. I'd argue, I'd argue both, but, but anyway, uh, who's going to fight against that? Well, you know, B Brian Stevenson did at equal justice initiative, a nonprofit supported by independent philanthropists and foundations that wanted to support that work. And that work has been incredibly important and there's much work yet to do, but, but, but that healthy, tension and friction contributes to a healthy democracy. And we see that time and time again. If you were upset about the separation of children from their families at the border, well, who was fighting for those children? Nonprofits. Nonprofits. Supported for sure. by philanthropy. You know, yeah. so I think that's what Rich meant. And 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 I and I appreciate him him saying that about the book. Yeah, well, I'm delighted it lifted up that point as well. And anything else surprise you uh, now in retrospect uh, now that the book's out and other feedback? Or uh, I know you don't mind stirring up some good conversation, and I'm sure you have done just that. Well, I think what I didn't know at the time that I was working on the book was that it would come out in a moment where there was such a kind of backlash against big philanthropy. And let me say that I. 
I'm all for critique of philanthropy and, and I'm all for questioning, like, why is it even possible to accumulate the amounts of wealth? You know, like I have opinions about our, like we probably all do, and they're probably not the same, but, uh, (laughs) you know, about our approach to taxation and all that. Um, but, but I guess I didn't, I didn't anticipate that, that the book would come out in a moment of such intense backlash to the point that you had some folks basically arguing that any giving is just a, is just a ruse, you know, to, 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 to sort of bolster your reputation or distract from the bad things you're doing, you know, and I think kind that's a cynical approach, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's preposterous. Like we want to encourage people to give and, right. and it's so important. And we've seen in this last year, how important it is. So, so I think it was surprising to me that in all of that, my book ended up being sort of positioned as the backlash to the backlash, you know, and, right. and right. that wasn't really what I was trying to do when I wrote it, but I was happy for it to play that role. Oh, indeed. I am as well. And all right. So if you did another book and I'm not putting the, put backing you into a corner, uh, is there another topic you would tackle if someday <laughs> you want to publish again? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I would ever write another book, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, it was a painful process, but, but I mean, right. I think, um, I guess even though it's, even though it is a uh, sort of, theme throughout giving done right. I think there, there is room for a book and, and if I don't write it, I hope somebody does. And there've been, there've been books that have sort of been in this lane, but that really, really focuses on the topics you focus on in your podcast. So maybe you should write it, Pat, (laughs) Uh, about that. That's, that's not, not necessarily a nonprofit I don't know, sometimes not, not a nonprofit leader how to, but rather something that educates this country about what it is, you know, more, more powerfully about what it is nonprofits and their staff do. And I'm not saying all nonprofits are great. I'm not saying all nonprofit staff are great, but, but I've spent enough time in small, you know, community-based organizations and bigger nonprofits to think that actually like there are great, success stories that we're not hearing about. And I, I, I wish as a society, we'd have maybe fewer books kind of um, putting on a pedestal, the latest, you know, tech Titan or entrepreneur and more. Um, and, you know, actually Paul Shoemaker just came out with a book that's, that does this. And I think really well, uh, more books that are lifting up the, the folks in the world that you're focused on and I'm focused on Patton, like, you know, who are doing just incredibly vital work uh, to help others. Yeah. Glad you say just that a greater appreciation, right. For those folks who are indeed doing this wonderful work and perhaps aren't even fully recognized in their own communities. So uh, I could not agree more if there's opportunity to lift them up, we need to do it. Um, All right. So Phil, as we close, You've given wonderful perspectives on all things philanthropy and nonprofit leadership. If someone approached you now and said, Phil, I'm thinking about going into nonprofit leadership, what advice would you offer or anything else you'd add maybe to that conversation? I would say, and I do not believe this is an original thought, So, I, but I don't know whose ideas I'm stealing. So, sure, uh, that's okay. I, I would say look, look for look for these things in, in what you, I'd say, go for it and, and, 
and and these are the things to look for uh a job in which you feel you're really contributing to something you care about um a job in which you're working with people you respect like and maybe could even have a little fun with yeah a role in which um a role in which you're growing uh and 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 learning uh, and I feel like I had a fourth one and now I just lost it, but that's, that's what a I would good say. Three. Well, that's a good three. That, yeah. That, that, that's what I would say. And, and if you, if you find that stick with it and don't necessarily think it's going to be really easy to find again, cause it might not be. Something you really care about uh, organization and people that you like and can work with successfully and, and that you can grow. Yeah. Which I do think, and sadly, I think the nonprofit sector suffers from a turnover as you well know, and yeah. I'll, I often think it is, well, probably not the first thing. I think a lot of people get into the nonprofit leadership because they do care about the cause, but then it is, in fact, that interaction with people once they get there or the lack of development and they go somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Great advice. Uh, as a student of all things philanthropic, I'm sure you've come across a book or two in your day, Phil, that you might recommend to our listeners. Might you share one? We, of course, are going to lift up your great book, but I wonder, have other books kind of touched you along your leadership journey? Sure. Um, none of these books are actually about philanthropy, but um, that's okay. Uh, I got three. Um, two are recent, and uh, I think really were helpful to me in this moment we're in as a country reckoning uh, with issues of racial justice. Uh, one is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And I, I, I like to read that book with the, with the frame of not just as a person, but as an organization. How are you anti-racist? Good point. Uh, secondly, um, a book called Biased by a psychologist at Stanford named Jennifer Eberhardt, um, really powerfully illustrating uh, the ways our brains are wired for bias, and importantly, then how you create processes to reduce the opportunities for bias to infect decision making. Interesting. Uh, and then, thirdly, this is just like a classic uh, old uh, leadership book, but that had a big impact on me, which is Leading Change by John Cotter. Uh, love it on the shelf behind me. And uh... Well, all three of these books sound like good ones to add to our wish list if we don't already have them. And um, again, something else I want to add to my listeners' wish list is, of course, learn more, Phil, about the good work you're doing. So you mentioned early in our conversation some of the things that CEP are doing. Is there anything else you would, if someone wants to learn more about you and the the work at there at CEP? Uh, just uh, two websites, CEP.org, and the other one is the the site for the podcast that my colleague Grace Nicolette and I host, givingdoneright.org. Uh, love it. Well, as a fan of all things podcast, uh, you can be assured I'll add that to the list. And uh, I think you've got your second season you're, you're working on right now. Is that correct? Yeah, Phil? exactly. Exactly. And it'll be, I, I think, I think we'll launch that uh, right after Labor Day and, and then take it into sort of giving season. That's fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you so much for having me, Pat, and I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Phil as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that will influence your perspective on philanthropy and the key issues affecting our sector. 
Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the resources there. And, of course, more about Phil's great book called Giving Done Right, as well as his podcast with the same title. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features just like this one we're producing at least once a month. If you like this episode, you might also want to go check out another leader in the philanthropic sector. It's number 93 with Rhett Mabry, president of the Duke Endowment. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. Keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.